This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Those of us in here, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 2. If you brought a Bible, it's in that one. If you didn't bring a Bible, grab the black hardback one in the rack in front of you. Uh, another thing that I say almost every week is I want you to read these things for yourself. I, I, I want you to believe what I say, but only as far as it's true. And I want you to see and understand and study the word of God on your own. I want to help equip you to do that. I want to do that for us as an act of worship. And so meet me in John chapter 2 and we will look at this together. One of the special things that I get to do as a pastor is to be part of weddings. In fact, I, I would argue that I have the best seat, the best spot, I stand in the best place in the house to see the wedding. I get to stand up with and, and officiate a couple that believes that God has brought them together because together they will glorify him more and become fuller versions of who he's created them to be and, and it, it, part of his molding work in their lives is to wed them. You know, and so I do love weddings. The only time that I don't like being a part of weddings is when, when something goes wrong. And let me just tell you right now, if you have a family wedding coming up, if it's your wedding, if it's a child's wedding, something will go wrong. Something always goes wrong. It's, you can plan and you can supply and you can communicate, but it's a lot that needs to come together on the day in the way we do weddings. Something will not always work. Something will always not work out the way that you hope it will. You have a choice. Your family has a choice on that day. You can let it ruin the time or you can roll with it. Even if it's not the way you planned, at the end of the day, you're going to be married, your son, your daughter, your grandchild, they will still be married, and that's a great thing. So here's my best advice. Whatever happens on the day, just go with it and enjoy the day. Now this morning, the Gospel of John brings us to a wedding where something has gone wrong. At least that's how, how things look. But there is more for us to see with what's gone wrong at the wedding. There's a deeper insight. There, what you'd call it another layer to, what we're happen- to what's happening. That if we're open to it, if only we'll look a little bit into it, what we'll see is a greater understanding of the work and the glory of God seen in the person of Jesus Christ. So this is a shorter section We can read the whole thing together and then we can break it down some. So follow along, John 2, starting at verse 1, we're going to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That's what John the writer means for us to see here. And as Christians, it's what we're to do with every bit of our lives. Our whole life is about seeing and glorifying God, looking to Christ. We see that really laid out for us well here at this wedding. So let's look at John chapter 2, verse 1. Follow along as I read for us. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, 
Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tested the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. All right, the gospel writer is so helpful here. If you wonder when you're reading the Bible, what, what am I supposed to see here? John just tells us exactly what we're supposed to focus in on. It's so clearly laid out for us in verse 11. This is the first sign Jesus does. He did it in Galilee, it showed his glory, and in those who really saw what happened, it confirmed for them that he is God's promised Savior. That's just what verse 11 says. John tells us, this is exactly what I want you to see here. Now, John does this kind of regularly in the gospel. We're going to see this more as we study. He explains why he's included something. So let's just not waste this. In fact, let's use verse 11 to help us understand, see the rest of it. Now, if you're anything like me, you read the Bible, and and you are helped by it, but at times there's enough ambiguity in there, um, maybe it's a a cultural divide, and, and you wonder just, why is this here? Why has it been written like this? Why did the writer say it like that? It's really nice when the author just comes out and tells you exactly why they wrote what they wrote it. So it's a gift from John. He's given it to us. Let's not waste it. Let's ask three questions of why this is included based on verse 11. Now, biblical writers don't waste space. So it's a good starting point for us to say, why, based on this verse, specifically is this here? What is this contributing? What does the author want us to see And what does he want us to hear? So I think we can just do this by asking these three questions. First, question number one, what's the setting? And I mean that in two ways. All right, so I'm going to cheat. There's three questions, but number one's a two-parter. Why is John telling us about a wedding in Galilee? He says that twice in 11 verses. He doesn't wait. Remember, he doesn't waste space. So once you might just think, well, he's telling you where it happened, but twice in just in, in just these eleven verses, he says it takes place in Cana at Galilee. There has to be something to that. So what, what's the setting? Part two of that first question: Why here in the gospel? So why is it set in Cana and Galilee, and then why here in the gospel? Now, to some degree, it's just chronological. This is when it happened, but, but there's more to it than that. And I'll, I'll explain that a little bit later. 
But just look at how this starts. On the third day, the third day from what? The gospel writer is building something here. So we're going to look at all that. What's the setting? The setting in Galilee, the setting in the gospel. Second question. Why does Jesus turn water into wine? Now, you could say, well, they had no wine. It's, it's, it's a deeper question. There's more to that question than that, and we'll get to that as well. Why water to wine? Third question, what is this a sign of? John says this is the first sign Jesus did. It implies there will be more, and there was And as we move through this gospel, each of them are important. So why is this the first sign that John gives us, and what does it mean? So three questions. What's the setting? Why the wine? And what's the sign? I so did not want to do this when it was coming together. I just just sensed the rhyme, and I didn't want it to happen. I just... I was just like, please don't make it the wine and the sign. Please don't make it the wine and the sign. I think, I think at least the setting, the wine and the sign is better. Uh, but I fought it all the way, but here we are. The setting, the wine, and the sign. First, the setting. So let's just go back in and ask where we are in the Gospel of John. Ask why we're in Galilee. And what is John setting up for us? So if you look at the very first words we just read, it says, on the third day. Now, if you're reading this gospel deliberately, you will see a clear pattern has emerged. There's a key explanation beginning with with John the Baptist of what his calling, John the Baptist is a central character in this gospel, but especially at the beginning. So John the Baptist says what his calling has been that he's come and been sent to prepare the way for the Messiah, the promised one of God. And there is this repetition that helps us to see what he's doing and to enter into that work. And the repetition has to do with days. So he has a key conversation where he lays out his mission, prepare the way for the Messiah. And then the gospel says, the next day, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he tells those around him he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's John 1.29. Then the gospel writer says a similar thing happened and he uses the phrase again, the next day. Then the day after that, some of John's students learn more about Jesus. So if you're doing the math, it goes like this. Day one... And this is the way that John the Gospel writer lays it out. Day one is John the Baptist saying, I'm here to prepare the way. Day two is John the Baptist saying, here he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Day three is him saying that again, pointing it out specifically to his disciples. Day four is John's disciples talking with Jesus, going and saying, where are you staying? We want to come and want to be with you for a a day and a half. And now, three days after that, We have the wedding. We have a total of seven days. Seven days. All right, on its own, maybe that's a coincidence. But it's not on its own. The beginning of this gospel is a clear allusion to what the Bible says about God's work in creation. You are meant 
to read John 1, where it says that, it, just look at with your eyes right now, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You're supposed to read that, and your mind is immediately supposed to go to where it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. First there was nothing, and then God said let there be light. God spoke and said, let there be light. And there was light. You're supposed to think of that. When you read the gospel of John, you're supposed to think of the beginning of Genesis. There's nothing else remotely like it. John is telling you that what's happening here now is nothing short of a new act of creation. The only thing that John can possibly find to help you see the significance of what he's telling you is happening is saying, remember when there was nothing and then God made everything? This is kind of like that. In fact, it'd be probably more accurate to say that was kind of like this. There's nothing and now everything has come. We're living in a way now where there's nothing, but everything is about to happen. That's what John is saying. That's what he wants you to see. And what we're reading this morning is what happened on the seventh day, where God was showing the completeness of his work. So in Genesis, on the seventh day, God rests. He says, this is peace. This is right. This is very good. And he's going now On the seventh day in John, John is going to say a better peace, a new peace has come and this is the start of it. We're clearly meant to see that there is a new work of creation happening right here and now we see what God's going to, how he's going to set about it on the seventh day. So on the third day, which is the seventh day, There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Again, remember, he says this twice. It bookends the account. Verse 1, there's a wedding in Cana in Galilee. Verse 11, he did this in Cana at Galilee. This was the first sign he did in this place. So what's so special about Galilee? To us, probably not much. But if you're an Israelite, and you are looking for the Messiah, you're expecting him to come from a specific direction. And that direction is in relation to Jerusalem, which is the holy city of God, which is the central gathering point, gathering place of God's people. And the reason you're expecting the Messiah to come from a certain direction is because in the history of God's people, The most devastating thing that ever happened to them was when Jerusalem, when their country was invaded, and particularly their capital city, their most holy place, was overrun by enemy pagan armies. The temple was destroyed. The place of their worship was torn down. And then the people were removed from this place, which they connected so much to their relationship with God to God's being with them, and they were taken away from this place and they were put into exile. And when that happened, their invaders, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, came from the north. 
And as a promise of hope, as devastating as that was, as a promise of hope and a sign that God would not only remain with them, but one day restore his people, that he would send a liberator and a a conqueror to free them. He promises even before, and we're going to read it in Isaiah in just a second, even before they're overrun and taken into exile, he promises that one is going to come from the same direction that, they would, that their conquerors, their defeaters would come from, the Savior would come from that same direction. In fact, it actually says that the Savior would take the same path as their enemies had once taken. We read John, or sorry, we read Isaiah 9 a lot at Christmas for good reason. But we don't often hear this part of it. This is Isaiah 9, starting at just verse 1. And you'll see where it connects to Christmas because I'm bringing it into verse 2, which is where we usually pick it up. Isaiah 9, 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the nations. The people, this is where it'll sound familiar, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. Did you hear it? The light comes into the darkness by following the path of the darkness through and then to God's people from Galilee. This is the way that God brings light. This is the way that he brings hope. God redeems and he restores and he renews and he gives life, not by giving a different life, but by entering into life with his people. You, me, this is the way he he, he enters into life with us. And he does that by coming through the darkness One of the greatest barriers to our faith is a wrong perspective or a wrong perception. I'm guilty of this all the time. We think that in order for God to work, something needs to be different. We have to change a bunch of things for God to work. The way God actually works is by coming to us here, not by making our circumstances different, but by joining us in them, by coming into our hardships and our struggles. And and, and he comes into them and he says two things. He says, "I'm, I'm here with you and I'm not going anywhere. And second, I'm here with you and in the midst of this, while you are in this, I'm gonna make you a new creation. God doesn't change circumstances as often as he changes us within and through circumstances. And the sooner we see that, the sooner God can can begin that redemptive work in us. If all we're interested in is him changing our circumstances, then it's not 
him we actually want. We, we might want his power, but it's not him. But if we're really going to be changed by him, then we have to see how the good news comes to us, the path of him through darkness into light. So if you wonder where God's light is going to come from, if you're looking for God's light, look where the darkness is because that's where God will come. And isn't that an incredible promise? Isn't isn't that great hope that the darkness doesn't even need to get removed? Like a great ship that cuts through the ice, like, like an ice sheet. Breaking it up, that's the way that God, he, he won't sail around it. He will come right through the darkness. And so if you go, I don't even know how the darkness will lift. It feels so dark. It feels so heavy. I, I don't even know where I go from here. You don't need to go anywhere. God will come through that and he will meet you there. We see that he comes through the, the path of their most devastating the worst time in their history. And God says, my hope comes through that. And now Jesus is here doing his first sign in Galilee. Again, that's not a coincidence. And John wants us to see it. This is where Jesus comes to us. He comes to us in the darkness. Now, the wine. Why does Jesus turn water into wine? So, all right, we're still in verse one. I need to pick it up. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus, who, who was invited to the wedding, he was there with his disciples. So the wine runs out, and, and the, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? He says, my hour is not yet come. And then his mother says, he'll, he'll do what you want. Now, first of all, don't be bothered by the way Jesus responds to his mom. It's not disrespectful. It's meant to show us that Jesus is, he, there is something here of, of him beginning to separate from the life he had before to what's in front of him now. But folks, we know that Jesus loves his mother. We know that he cares deeply for his mother. That's actually in this gospel quite a bit. Of, of all the things that John is called by Jesus to do, one of them is to say, this woman, I want you to treat her as your mother. I have to go, and I love her dearly. And so he, he actually, Jesus commissions John, the writer of this gospel, take care of my mom. She's precious to me. He's not being disrespectful. And we know that, so here's the clue. The clue is the way he says his hour is not yet come. The hour is his, and it's also John's way of talking about his death. And so Jesus is saying, it's just not time but he's already starting to look toward that hour. And then one more clue that, that John, or so that Jesus isn't upset or disrespectful to, to Mary is he just does what she asks. He, he obeys her right here. He just says, he basically says, I'm not, I don't want to do this, but okay, I'll do it. So verse six. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. All right, so our question that I asked earlier is why make new wine from water? Remember, all these things have a purpose. So I thought about this. Jesus feeds 5,000 people by multiplying food, taking a little bit of food and it just never runs out. Just as, as one question, 
Why not do that? Why not just have people keep drinking from their cups, but, but the wine never runs out of the cups? Why do it specifically like this? And why does John include such uh, specific detail? Again, he doesn't waste words, and, and I think that's the answer. John tells us very particularly how this is done. So look at what it says. There are six stone jars. They're large, 20, 30 gallons each, and they serve a very particular function. They are for a ceremonial washing before the feast can begin. The Jewish rite of purification is a ceremonial washing that's done especially before a feast is to commence. And so the purpose of these jars is there so that people could perform what we're now going to see is an external cleansing in obedience to God. But what Jesus is going to do is he's going to take these instruments of religious piety and out of them he's going to draw something better. So in a few chapters, Jesus will tell a woman drawing water out of a well that there's a better well to drink from so that she never goes thirsty again. And so her question then is, where can I find the water? And Jesus says, he himself is the well. Whoever comes to him and takes what he's offering, which is most fully himself, it's probably accurate to say whoever receives him will find their life in him. So why does he turn water into wine? It's because he's taking something that was an external religious observance and he's saying, I'm going to give you something so much better. I'm going to give you me. I'm going to put myself inside of you. And that brings us to our our third question. What's this a sign of then? This is the first sign he did. What's it a sign of? And this kind of ties the rest of these together. Hear quickly what John writes near the end of his gospel, because this kind of frames this. This is John chapter 20, verse 30. Just listen as I read it. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, Jesus did lots of other miracles. John chose these specifically, and the reason is clear. He believed that these were the right ones to help us believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing that, we're going to find true life in him. John handles the miracles A little bit different than actually the other gospel writers. The others, the other three gospel writers almost downplay the miracles. They don't want you to focus on these kind of supernatural things. What they want you to do is listen to the teaching of Jesus. See the conduct and the character of Jesus. uh, Hear what Jesus is calling people to. But John says, I'm going to take a different road entirely. I'm going to share these miracles these signs as a way of authenticating the message and the testimony of Jesus. These signs show you that he is the son of God. These signs are given so that you would believe. They're an important tool for John in the truthfulness 
as he lays out Jesus as the Messiah. But still this question remains, why now, why this one first? Again, the, the timeline surely plays a part of it. It's just when it happened. But there, again, there has to be more than that than this. John picks and chooses among many miracles. He just said there's a lot of things that happen. So why this one, why now? Uh, if you read the whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, the most consistent metaphor <coughs> you will find for how God sees his people and how he relates to us is to talk about marriage. We're the bride, and he's the bridegroom. So in the Old Testament, there are all of these pictures of his people, again the bride, running away from him, committing adultery against them. But like a good bridegroom, he's faithful, and he continues to woo his people back. That's what the Old Testament says over and over again. We are adulterous people, and he is a faithful God. He continues to draw us back to himself. And then in the New Testament, that metaphor shifts a little bit. When the kingdom of God fully and, and finally comes, the picture that's used to describe it is a great wedding feast where there is good food and pure wine. This sign right here is so critical because it's the transition between the unfaithful people of the past that God has chased but remains steadfastly loving toward. And now the time has come, the time is at hand when we're going to begin to look toward the wedding feast, when the kingdom of God will come, when Jesus will call all the guests together and say the wedding supper of the Lamb is now ready. There are three key conversations that open this up for us here. Uh, the first is between Jesus and his mother. She knows who he is and, and, and she wants him to help. The, the second conversation is between Jesus and the servants. They see what he's done, but, it, but it's evident that they don't fully understand what's happened. So it's possible to see the miracle, but not get its significance. It's the disciples who very clearly through this come to believe. Then there's a final conversation. This is the one that really unlocks it for us. The last conversation is the master of the feast talking to the bridegroom. It was in ancient Jewish custom, the bridegroom's responsibility to show a good time to the guests. Weddings would often take place over the course of a week. There would be a week of celebrating. And so accordingly, the bridegroom should ready celebrations for an entire week, including making sure there is enough wine to continue the party. The bridegroom has failed. They've run out of wine. He hasn't done his job. But Jesus intervenes. Listen, we don't know anything else about this couple. They're never heard from again. So the point of this isn't, well, what was happening at the, what, what was happening between the bridegroom and the bride and the, the mass? The, the, the point is, Jesus is here. And what we're being told, because this is what, what the story is about is Jesus is stepping in 
as doing what the bridegroom should have done as the bridegroom, and he's taking care of the problem. He's doing what this other man should have done. He steps in, takes the place, fulfills the responsibilities of a good bridegroom. And so I don't mean that in the sense of this man's future married life. Again, we know nothing about what happens to this couple after this, and and we're not meant to. We're told about this sign because this is a way of saying that Jesus is stepping in as the true bridegroom. And this is what Jesus does for us. The first kingdom of God had a married man and a woman who were supposed to obey God, love one another, and fill the earth to the praise and glory of God. That's what Adam and Eve in the garden were supposed to do. That's what they're supposed to be. Their marriage was supposed to spread the kingdom of God over the earth. But they failed. And we've all failed after them. Jesus has now come as the better bridegroom. Where our first bridegroom, Adam, failed us, Jesus has come to be the better one. He won't fail. We fail, he doesn't. He will take our place. We're all the bridegroom who has failed. He's come as our groom to take us, our bride. I know that's weird for the men in here. It's weird for me too. I get that, but it's true. So the question that I'm asking is, what is this a sign of? The answer is that Jesus has come to take our place and do what we cannot do ourselves. And the disciples rightly see his glory in this. John 1.14 says that the word of God incarnate will show us the glory of God in a way that only he can. And the disciples start to see it here. There's more to come. They're going to see it more and more. They're going to stumble sometimes. They're not going to get it other times. But this is where it starts. And so the last question to ask of these questions we've been asking is, is this what you see when you look at Jesus? Do you see the glory of God in a unique way? Or is he not that special to you? Do you know that you need him to take your place in death so that you can have your sins paid for and be forgiven and take his place in life? We have to believe in Jesus. And not in some, you know, sure, I believe, but I do have other things going on at the same time kind of way. It's the disciples of everybody who sees what happens here. The servants, the master of the feast has no idea. The bridegroom, can you imagine him? He's going, yeah, I I did save that. I mean, he he knows it's a lie. He, He knows what's going on. He doesn't know maybe know how, but he knows he didn't do that. The disciples are the ones who see what's happening and they believe. And they're never the same. If you truly believe in Jesus like the disciples, you can never be the same. You can never look at this world or anything else in your life the same way again. Jesus has to be the center of everything for you. He has to be so prominent that it's him and then everything else, even the good things. And so the question is, is he? Is he that? For these signs have been given so that you would believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and you would have your life in him. Christians, let us be refreshed in that this morning. If you are not a believer in Jesus, may God give you that sight this morning and may you see and believe that he is the Christ. And may he be the white hot center of all. May he be this everything for us, for this is why this sign is given. Christ comes to us in our darkness. He is for us life. And we have this here so that we would believe. Let us grow in our belief, in our faith, encouraging one another together. For he is indeed worthy of all the glory. Let's pray. God, thank you for this sign. Thank you for John's faithful recording of it. That just as the disciples have seen and believed, we might also see and believe. For those of us with faith, may it be strengthened. For those of us who don't yet have it, may it start. Jesus, may you be precious to us. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.